With Fidelity Wealth Management, a dedicated advisor can work with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential. Plus, you'll have access to specialists in estate planning strategies. So you're not just growing and protecting your wealth, you're sharing it. More at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. It is Saturday, October 17th, and we are delighted that you are joining us. The weekend podcast is when I get to interview really cool people who think big or maybe small, doesn't really matter, but cool people. Mark found this guy because he read an article that um, this guy wrote in Barron's, and his name is Nathan Sheets. He's an economist. And we invited him on because Mark basically sent me an email, said, oh, finally, someone who can compare the two presidential candidates with no partisanship. And I think that is one of Nathan Sheets' great strengths. So he's the chief economist and head of global macroeconomic research at PGIM Fixed Income. He did spend a bunch of his career in government-related jobs. He did serve at the U.S. Treasury under the second Obama administration, but also at the Federal Reserve Board and the IMF before that. He's pretty middle of the road. And he says, look, I'm just a wonk. So in the first part of our interview, we are focusing on President Trump's economic policies and whether or not uh, stimulus will be detrimental to the national debt and what that means in terms of contemplating what kind of stimulus we need. Here is the first part of our interview with Nathan Sheets. I want to start first by getting a little bit of your bio here. You had a kind of a cool job in the last administration. What'd you do? So I was the Undersecretary for International Affairs at the U.S. Treasury, which means that I was uh, responsible for the international program of the Treasury, working with foreign counterparts, uh, building relationships, working in the G20, the IMF, and uh, so forth, representing the United States around the world. Before you took that job... Were you political in nature? Was that like, oh, this is the coolest thing? And how'd you get involved in that? My roots, I think the best word I could use would be technocratic or, you know, pure economic analysis that I spent almost 20 years at the Federal Reserve, also in the international division, and then spent uh, a few years in the private sector uh, speaking to market participants. And in the process of uh, those other activities, I built relationships with a number of folks who were working at the Treasury. I think that's the the nature of how I got there and uh, why they reached out was I think they were looking for somebody who understood the economy, understood markets, and understood how uh, international economic policy is constructed and put together. And now you are chief economist and head of global macroeconomic research at PGIM Fixed Income, which sounds to me like you decided you got to pay for your kids' college education after all this public service, right? I I, I have four kids, and uh, <laughs> the college bills are substantial. <laughs> um, all right, so let's dive into this because 
Although the economy is not taking center stage right this second in terms of the rhetoric between the the two campaigns, how would you characterize the difference between a second Trump administration and a Biden administration when it comes to their approach to economics? So I think the uh, philosophical differences really are significant. So for a Trump administration, I think it's put your foot on the accelerator and try to grow the economy. And I think that that is the stated rationale for the tax cuts that were put in place and the uh, efforts to deregulate the economy. I think for a Biden administration, it is very much a focus on how do we make the economy fairer? And in the process of making the economy fairer, what are the tools that we can use to also make it more efficient? And I think that's what leads to a push for increased infrastructure expenditure, increased education expenditure, a greater emphasis on the environment and uh, developing green technologies. But it is between these two candidates, the philosophical divide on economic issues is very, very broad. Well, doesn't it go back to the age-old question of do you believe in the supply side economics theory, which it seems to me, you know, observing the Trump administration, I mean, look, he probably doesn't believe in anything. So I'm just going to go out on a limb and say people in his administration believe on some level that cutting taxes helps to spur economic growth, an old theory called supply-side economics. Is that uh, fair to say about the way that they've conducted themselves in terms of pursuing this ideal of growth? I think uh, that is a very fair characterization of the gearing of policy. It really is an effort to generate jobs and generate investment. And I think that's what we saw in the tax cuts that were put into place in late 2017. And arguably in 2018, some of that was starting to get traction. But then another aspect of Trump's economic program is the trade wars. And just as the economy was starting to lift a bit as a result of those policies, it got hit with a big adverse development with the effect of the trade wars. I guess that I had sort of believed that this idea of supply side tax cut to get growth had been killed off. But what you're saying is actually there was some evidence that the economy was picking up. I had interviewed a couple of economists and they said, yes, you're going to get one decent year of growth and then we'll go back to trend. What does the research tell us about tax cuts and growth? So I would say that broadly speaking, there isn't a whole lot of evidence that tax cuts are going to generate additional growth. However, the counter to that is that the U.S. economy has been in a place where investment has been quite weak for an extended period of time. And uh, the narrative was, well, maybe lower corporate tax rates, particularly the lower corporate tax rates, might put firms in a position uh, where they would invest more. They'd have more money and they would invest more. And in 2018, we saw a little bit, nothing definitive or decisive, 
But then with the trade wars, that was slammed down. So we will never know really Mm. whether those tax cuts did what President Trump wanted. He cut short his experiment, so to speak, before it really had a chance to gain root. And certainly now we're back to a place of weak investment characterized by substantial macro uncertainties. And I think that was true even before the virus erupted. I was just going to ask you, so I want to sort of divide this into the pre and current pandemic era. So we get the tax cut end of 2017, 2018, you get mostly corporations and rich people. Rich people obviously are saving their money because that's what rich people do. And the corporations, some of whom are very willing to make, you know, shell out a few bucks to do things, but mostly just increase their dividend payouts and reward their shareholders. Okay. Or buy their own stock. And now you get to 2019 and, you know, the trade wars are starting to light up a bit. And I guess what I'm interested in understanding is if you, if you objectively look at 2018 and 2019 coming into it, there were obviously some fissures in the two main theses that the Trump administration had not just sort of ascribed to, but enacted, right? So one is tax cuts lead to growth. And the second is we need a fairer relationship with China. And the way to get that relationship to be a fairer relationship is to enact this trade war, I guess. The other part of the Trump administration's policies, I guess, that you write about also has to do with regulatory issues. And so a lot of regulations have been watered down in the effort to, I guess, spur growth. And so if you put everything together, how do you grade the Trump administration in terms of 2017, 18, and 19 in terms of economic issues? Well, that's a, that's a really interesting question. And let's say uh, through 19, maybe a B minus, it could have been a higher grade without the trade wars. But I really think that the trade wars and the broader uncertainty in the way we conducted international economic policy created a heavy restraint on the economy and particularly on the corporate sector. So I don't think we can do any better than B minus. Now, that said, in their defense, growth was at or a little bit above trend through those years. And the unemployment rate stayed low. It seems that it would be unfair to give them a grade weaker on the economy through that period than B minus. Another question that's really interesting is whether the deregulation and some of the indicators that we were continuing to struggle with heavy inequality in our economy was in some sense creating problems on down the road for us in terms of social divisions, in terms of heavier debt levels that we're going to have to deal with, in terms of a less efficient economy and a a dirtier environment that over time we'll also have to pay a price for. So let's move on then to the current pandemic, the health pandemic and also the economic pandemic. And we're going to get to the whole Biden part. Don't worry, everyone listening is like jumping out of their skins. What about Biden? Okay, calm down. We'll get there. So Nathan, pandemic hits. Can you talk about why the Federal Reserve has been so hyper-focused on the economic and financial fallout of the pandemic on the country's financial situation? This pandemic saw an absolutely 
extraordinary decline in uh, U.S. GDP, which means spending, it means employment uh, during the first half of the year. And consistent with that, the economy lost roughly 22 million jobs and the unemployment rate soared. And so the Federal Reserve looks at this situation and says, what can we do to help provide support through this extraordinary time? And uh, there are a couple of different ways for them to do that. One is to directly address the economy, which they did primarily through cutting rates and uh, some asset purchases. But there is also a risk during those periods that if the financial markets collapse and become dysfunctional, that then is going to cascade back into even weaker spending, employment, production, and quality of life for U.S. citizens. So the Fed focuses on the markets, not for the sake of raising asset prices, but the Fed focuses on the markets from the standpoint of protecting the economy and protecting jobs. And the Federal Reserve Chair, Jay Powell, just continues to say the Fed has lending authority. It does not have spending authority. So coming into March, there clearly was this effort, a bipartisan effort to create this thing called the CARES Act. What is at stake with no further stimulus on the table right this moment? So the fiscal stimulus that has been put in place to date has been very effective in supporting unemployed workers, which have been primarily lower paid workers, and in addition, providing support to small business. And I think that what we will see in coming months, if we don't have additional fiscal stimulus, is that some of the unemployed households and other lower income households and small businesses are going to be hit and feel meaningful pain as a result of that. That means the growth in the economy is going to be slower. Consumption is going to be lower. The capacity of businesses to employ will be less as, as small businesses just don't have the resources. So I really see it as additional fiscal stimulus at this stage as being a critical part of supporting the recovery through the next three to six months. What would it mean right now for the economy if we do not see another package maybe until next year? Let's let's play forward. What would it look like to have no additional support until 2021? It means that U.S. real GDP growth in the fourth quarter will be appreciably lower, probably five or six percentage points lower and if we had additional fiscal stimulus, it, it means that the unemployment rate will not be declining as quickly. And the unemployment rate is going to stay higher for longer. So there are very direct and concrete implications of this for the next several quarters. The good news is that underneath all of that, there does seem to be a recovery process that's occurring in the United States. A additional fiscal would be a very helpful and, I think, essential tailwind to the recovery. Were you in the Obama administration in the first term or in the second term or both? Uh, during the second term. Good, because I don't have to hang this on you then. 
I would say that in the first term, maybe one of the lessons learned from the housing crisis is that the government needed to do more for individuals, or at least as much as they did for individuals as they did for the stability of the financial system. I cannot quite wrap my brain around what is the roadblock here. As you said, you know, spending money before an election is usually a good idea. So anyone who's, you know, kind of out there would say, and and maybe up for re-election, hey, I want this, right? But more to the point, there's a humanitarian aspect of it, but there's an economic aspect of it. I thought it was almost humorous to hear some of the lawmakers say, well, what about the debt and the deficit? Aren't we adding too much to the debt and the deficit? Can you respond to that in terms of a an economic headwind in the future? Talk about the ultimate kick the can down the road. Why is it smart to spend the money today despite the fact that we are moving into pretty scary territory in terms of the numbers and the the amount of the national deficit and the national debt accruing at this pace? On the one hand here, let me be a two-handed economist. One of the great question marks of where we are today is how much scarring is there going to be in the economy as a result of this episode? And by scarring, I mean permanent effects of what is happening on economic performance and economic growth in the years ahead. And some of the areas where we might see scarring are amongst workers who have lost their jobs. These folks who aren't working, their skills are deteriorating. They may have a find it more difficult to get a new position. Uh, small firms that go out of business aren't going to be able to produce anymore, and that means the economy is weaker. Corporate and uh, household balance sheets are stretched and hurting and will hurt more as this thing carries forward. So I think that the risk here is that we have more scarring if we don't have the fiscal stimulus which translates directly into a less productive economy going forward and slower growth. But if you hear debt deficit as the rationale, what are your first thoughts or what's your response to that? I have uh, spent the last uh, six weeks or so looking at a lot of data on exactly this issue. And I would say that for the United States and other advanced economies, there's very little evidence, maybe no evidence, that higher debt levels are associated with higher inflation. All right. Tomorrow, we are going to talk about Nathan Sheets' view of the Biden economic policy. So tune in tomorrow. And until then, you can always send us a question or comment about this. Just send an email, askjill at jillonmoney.com, askjill at jillonmoney.com. Don't forget to wash your hands wear your masks, maintain your physical distancing, and lift somebody up today. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.